Welcome! This is the Hassan Sorrells Audio Experience. My name is Hassan Sorrells. Look, we are trying something different. So I want you to join us on the Hassan Sorrells Presents Audio Experience for interviews, for rants, for raves, for thoughts, for process. And you'll get a knee-deep, hip-deep, and ear-deep view inside of what I do. Look, if you like what you're listening to, please like me, please rank me, Stitcher, iTunes, Overcast, Google Play Music, everywhere where you get your groove on, I want you to give me a few stars. All right, now, let's head into the experience. Hello, thank you so much, uh, Jasan Sorrells. Have I pronounced your name right? Jasan? It's actually Hassan Sorrells. Hassan, okay, thank you. Thank you for clarifying, because as I say, I know names are are very uh, particular. Um, But yeah, so thank you so much, Hassan, for for taking the time to talk with us uh, at MyCop. Um, so, we know that you are the CEO of a company called HSCT Publishing, uh, and you're based in Texas. Now, I just wanted to take the opportunity to just talk a little bit more about that and uh, just, you know, why you got started and who you are as a person and what led you on this road. Sure. So, uh, thank you, Laraba, uh, for having me uh, today. Thank you for talking with me today. So, as you said before, my name is Hassan Sorrells. I am the CEO of HSCT Publishing. We are a uh, we're a publishing company that's wrapped around um, a leadership consultancy. As a result of COVID nineteen, we transitioned from being an in person uh, training and development company to a remote training and development company that really focuses on helping small and medium-sized business uh, leaders, uh, specifically managers and supervisors, um, become better, right? Um, Because in times of COVID, in times of disruption, in times of great crisis, uh, one of the more one of the more uh, deleterious areas, one of the more damaging areas uh, for folks uh, can be in workplaces around leadership. As a matter of fact, our motto here at HSCT Publishing is no more accidental leadership. And we do this through the delivery uh, through the delivery of training and development ideas and concepts uh, through uh, two products, uh, our leadership toolbox, um, which is in essence a master class with coaching certifications and assessments. Um, and of course, our leadership development asynchronous subscriber based platform leading keys. Hmm. Well, I have to say that that's a very loaded statement but i want to also look at the statement that you made no more accidental leadership because i think that that's quite an interesting term because you know i think that you know sometimes in in terms of leadership sometimes people are thrust into leadership without any uh experience and they want to consider themselves leaders but they don't necessarily know how to lead as because to say it's something that they're not familiar with so could you like? Could we focus on that? Because I think that's a very interesting uh, term that you've used, and I'm very, very curious myself. Sure. So, on in on average, uh, in America, and I don't know how it is where you're at, but on average, in America, um, a manager or supervisor um, is uh, thrust or promoted um, into their position, and then it is ten years before they take any type of formalized leadership development training. Just think about that for a minute. 10 years before they're actually formally trained. Most managers and supervisors uh, come into their roles as a result of attrition, as a result of engage, being engaged in a survivor type uh, exercise where they were the last person standing. And so congratulations, you have the title of leader. Mm. But titles are not leadership 
and people don't follow positions. People follow leaders. And so fundamentally what managers and supervisors have to learn, and they learn this through the school of hard knocks primarily over the course of a decade, is they learn what works with folks and what doesn't work with folks. They learn how to be reactive, not necessarily responsive. They learn how to be accidental, not intentional. And over the course of the last nine years that we've been doing this, we've trained close to 15,000 managers and supervisors, and we've seen the consequences and outcomes of accidental leadership, uh, failure to retain teams, high levels of dysfunction and damaging communication, high levels of fake and unnecessary and damaging and toxic conflict, which can lead to, of course, workplace bullying, workplace discrimination, diversity and inclusion issues, sexual harassment issues, toxic workplaces, need I go on. And of course, which this is at the lowest possible level, apathy and a failure to understand that the fact that you are in a position means that you are the example that other people have of leadership. They don't care about a prime minister and they don't care about a president. They don't even care about their mayor. They don't even know who that person is, but you, they know you and the line between a leader and a boss, that's the line that it takes 10 years of managers and supervisors, uh, going through the accidents of leadership to discover where that line is. Mm. So our focus here at HSCT publishing is to reduce that time frame of learning. It is to provide managers and supervisors with the skills necessary to lead so that they can be intentional leaders. Fundamentally, we believe that every problem in the world today, and by the way, here's another loaded statement for you, <laughs> every problem in the world today can be solved through the effective application of intentional leadership practices. And we firmly stand behind that. Okay, well, I have to say I'm very impressed by that. And I think that's definitely something that, you know, something to, to, to think about. But could you take me, could you show me the step-by-step -step process? What does it involve? So, like, you know, and also who are the sort of people that would come on the, you know, on a training course? I mean, if you think of the average person um, who, as you've rightly pointed out, uh, they are more or less thrust in that position because, as you know, and I've been in, in many work situations where it's very very competitive and in that competitiveness there's, there's a lot of toxicity there's a lot of antagonism and it's almost a, it's a little bit it's reminiscent of say the hunger games or squid game and there's somebody who's you know the winner at the end but they're so traumatized that probably they pass on those toxic traits to the to their team you know so that makes perfect sense so that's why there's such a gap in the market but i have to say i'm very curious how do you take somebody who's who has gone through all of that and bring them to a process and bearing sorry <laughs> bearing in mind that it's a short time frame that you give to yourself how do you ensure that in that time frame that you've given them that they undo those toxic practices mm -hmm. so we're <clears throat> we live in the world of the real we don't live in the world of the hunger games and we don't live in the world of squid game unfortunately we live on earth and we live on the earth now and we don't yeah. live on the earth that we would like to live in we live yeah. on the earth as it is so yeah. um I, i've said this for many many years i'm an organic trainer who lives in the real world look quite frankly sometimes in our training process uh, we will have a client we will have an attendee who will ask us uh hey son I've got this bloodsucker of a boss who takes all the blame, or no, who takes all of the credit and gives us all the blame. Mm 
mm. and uh, has created a toxic environment, as you just said, with poor communication and high levels of conflict. What do I do about this? Mm -hmm. As if we're going to play the game uh, that used to be on American television back in the 70s and 80s called Stump the Chump. And mm. guess who the chump is? <laughs> <laughs> not me i don't know i don't know that, but i'm gonna i'm very very curious now because I, I as you know i'm obviously from the uk so we don't have something like that um that's right yeah, we continue yeah please yeah absolutely so um so when this question gets asked um the appropriate answer is sometimes it's okay to have a mutiny but yeah. the reason you won't do it is because you are like gulliver tied down by the Lilliputian ideals that you believe have locked you into the organization and the culture in the way that it is now. And you do not believe because you cannot envision a future of it being different. Mm. So let me give you the reality. The reality here is you won't mutiny. You'll sit and complain mm. and then you'll continue to try to advance and get promoted inside of a toxic culture, hoping against hope that once you get to the top of that culture, you'll somehow make changes. And it might take you 10 years. It might take you 20 years. But by that point, you'll have an ulcer. If you're a woman, you'll have three husbands. If you're a man, you'll have three wives. And you'll have a boat that you go and hang out on on the weekend. And you'll wonder who you are and your kids won't know you. That's mm. one option. The other option is you could sit in this training and you could listen to what I'm about to tell you about a mutiny. You could gather the people together who are tired of engaging in this toxic environment you could put together a plan and a vision for the future that is better and then you could go and basically upend your boss now the reason why people don't do this is because it takes courage it takes clarity and it takes candor we have a process we call the three c's when we talk about conflict most people lack clarity in their thinking Matter of fact, when we run trainings, one of the questions that we will sometimes ask is, how many people here believe that they think clearly? Tragically, only around one person or two people out of 10 will raise their hand. Think about that for a minute. Most people are running around with muddled thinking. And by the way, they're running around with muddled thinking, not about highfalutin things or, you know, big ideas like around leadership, right? They're running around with muddled thinking around well, where do I get my next snack? Or when's the next coffee break coming up? Mm. Muddled thinking kills more bad leadership than anything else. And it, I'm sorry, it kills more good leadership than anything else. And it encourages more bad leadership. Mm. It even encourages something that's worse than bad leadership. It encourages what I, what I call mediocre leadership. Mediocre leadership is neither hot nor cold. It merely just is. It's lukewarm right? And no one wants to take a shower in lukewarm water. That's mm. annoying. <laughs> so you asked about process, right? How do you process someone through that? So let me go back to the mutiny question. Step number one, get clarity on a future. Step number two, get some candor about who you are, where you are at, and how you are attempting to lead. And then step number three, you're going to want to get together some of your courage, some of your heart. Uh, Brene Brown uh, calls courage a heart word, and she's exactly correct. Courage is looking in the face of the potential of you being fired, of you being demoted, of everybody hating you, and saying what a leader does, what a statesperson, man or woman does, 
is look in the face of all of that and say, well, there's a better way. So let's go. Mm. Those are your three basic steps. But if you can't even start on step one of clear thinking about how you're going to get out of your problem, you cannot get to describing what your problem is, nor can you get to the courage to fix it. Mm -hmm. And many times folks complain like it's a bodily function mm -hmm. rather than solving the problem that their own two hands and their own effort inside of their own workplace culture can actually solve. Mm -hmm. Look, fundamentally, every single person is a leader whether they are defined as being at the entry level, at the mid-level, or at the top. Mm. But we don't run our organizations and our cultures like that. We run them like hierarchies, and then we demand that people, well, have accountability thrust upon them. And mm -hmm. we weep when they do not take ownership, and we wonder why there's all this responsibility laying around, but no one wants to pick it up. Mm. Yeah, and I think that that's uh, something that's relevant, that we are all born leaders. Now, I have to say, process that you've taken me through is, is, is very 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 good and i i mean i feel like i feel at ease already <laughs> i do i generally do but i also have to challenge you if i can and say okay this is great but what makes what you're doing unique because there, you know you, you've taken me through a process and you've been very eloquent about it i'm so i'm curious about like for example there are many people who you know offer leadership courses and you know there are many people who talk about you know uh, what it means to be a leader, what it means to take courage. I mean, for some people, if they, for example, you know, this is just me being speculative, people may not necessarily need courage. They may just hate a job and may feel that this is not worth it. And as you know, obviously with coronavirus and even with my own personal experiences, working and having being in that toxic environment, uh, I decided to leave the rat race, but it didn't require anything. It just required the fact that I was just pissed off and just tired, you know? Um, so what I'm curious, as I say, is, what makes what you're doing unique versus maybe, say, somebody else who's doing similar things? I'm not Tony Robbins. Mm. And I'm never going to be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm not Ken Blanchard. Mm -hmm. I'm not Jim Collins. Mm -hmm. I'm not here to tell you how to move from good to great. Mm -hmm. I'm not here to hit you on the top of your forehead and magically turn you into something else that only lasts yeah. for about a month. Mm. I'm here to tell you what the truth is. Mm. And quite frankly, the truth of leadership is really what we need more of in this world. We don't need more Tony Robbins. He's got that market locked up. We don't need more Ken Blanchard. He's got that market locked up. We don't need more Jim Collins. He's got that market locked up. We don't even need more Brene Brown. She's got that market locked up. What we need right now in this world today are people with the courage to actually say the truth. You talked about getting pissed off and just leaving. Well, quite frankly, what's happened with the Great Resignation is not necessarily people getting pissed off and leaving, but people being given the opportunity to make an alternative choice that was never offered to them in the market before. At least not offered to them at a level where they could see it. Remember I said vision, right? People have been resigning jobs for years. There is a, a, a old song, country song, from back in the 1970s in America by a guy named Donald Eugene Lytle, uh, infamously known as Johnny Paycheck, called Take This Job and, well, shove it, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm making a mental note of all of these songs. Like, what was the other one? Top the Spot? Yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
continue. <clears throat> right. So he wrote this book back in the 1970s yeah. in America for an American culture that was at the end of its rope with, curiously enough, inflation, recessionary fears, uh, a failed foreign war, uh, a failed presidency, <laughs> and an overall lack of cultural confidence. Remind you of any other time in the world? Because history, yeah, history just repeats itself. Well, it just repeats itself. That's all it does. It's all the same stuff. So the great resignation is nothing new. What has happened is the alternatives have become attractive, thus making it uh, low cost, low risk for people to make that choice. Now, with that being said, this does not negate the failures of leadership, nor does this negate the importance of leadership moving forward. You mentioned leading yourself, and quite frankly, self-awareness and self-leadership is really the first step to being a leader of others. If you can't lead yourself somewhere, you cannot lead anybody else anywhere. You also asked underneath there, what makes me different? Here's what makes me different. And this makes our consultancy and our publishing company different than anything else out on the market. Our unique approach to uh, leadership development is an aggregate of many other ideas put together in different ways. Because fundamentally, here's what's different about the world now than when Tony Robbins first started back in the 1970s, or when Ken Blanchard first started back in the 1960s, or when Jim Collins first started writing about being good to great back in the 1980s. We have something that those folks did not have. Uh, we have Google. So I don't actually have to teach you how to be a better leader. Matter of fact, I tell this to folks all the time. There are a wealth of information and resources on the internet. Why aren't you going and picking them up if you're in a toxic work environment? What's stopping you from doing that? So then, but then my next question would be, if, if this is the case, are you directing me to another place that I could have gone in the first place? So that's why I'm, I'm very curious. No, what I'm doing is I'm challenging you directly because you didn't go to that other place. You're sitting in this training with me. And you're sitting in this training with me because you didn't go to that other thing. You didn't go listen to that other podcast. You didn't watch that series of YouTube lectures. You didn't do that Google search. Or if you did, what you found there didn't answer the actual core question you have. You know, the real one you want to get clarity on. And so the market, the market differentiator is that our leadership consultancy, our company exists at that moment of clarity that you are seeking to have. And we guide you through that clarification process to get you to candor and courage so that you can take the next steps that are necessary to lead your people, your teams, your organizations, and your cultures. Okay. Yeah, because I, I mean, I, I, uh, I mean, it's, I always ask people, whenever I have people that I talk to, I always ask them what makes them unique. I mean, I kind of think that I'm thinking about it. And I'm thinking that, you know, it's definitely, you definitely have a unique, you're living in a unique era um, in the sense that is you're, you're right, you know, and I think that people have more resources at their disposal. And you talked about the great resignation and I'm very grateful for you talking about it because I myself am also a business owner and I work with my, my business and our business, I should say, 
I work with other people is in um, looking to find ways to, to help people to create audio content. But as I say, that's something that we can talk about at a later date because it's more or less you that we're focusing on now. But I always, as I say, ask people what makes what makes them unique. And if I feel like that question isn't hasn't been asked, I, I press a little bit. So, I mean, is there something that you can tell me? Because I'm very impressed by you. I'm very impressed by the way you pride yourself and everything. But I'm also so curious about, is there a unique perspective that you have or something unique that I won't get from Google? Because I think that that is something that is also very, very relevant. And bear in mind, you can also ask me these questions when the, the interview is over. And I'll be happy to answer <laughs> But I'm just so curious because, you know, businesses, you know, people, I imagine that it's so saturated. You know, and so I'm so good. I want to leave with something that I've, I I didn't know before. You know, if that makes sense. So you know, is that something we can we can really look at? Or yes, absolutely. So that's a great question, and it is a fundamental one. <clears throat> and let me frame my uniqueness, or let let me frame the uniqueness of our consultancy in this way. Mm-hmm. The uniqueness is my voice. And that's all that's necessary. No one else is Hassan Sorrell's. Mm-hmm. That's it. Hassan yeah. Sorrell's was born in 1979. Hassan Sorrell's is 43 years old. Hassan Sorrell's is this. Hassan Sorrell's is that. On the long enough tale, with 8 billion people on the planet, every single one of us is a unique and shining star. Mm-hmm. I don't need any other differentiator other than that. Mm. There's no other differentiator necessary than yeah. that. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact... Um, because that differentiator is so unique, uh, the voice of Hassan Sorrells comes out in our content. Mm-hmm. It comes out in our training approach. It comes out in our training philosophy. It comes out in our training products and our services. It comes out in our platforms and in our podcast. It comes out in our books and it rings through everything. So even when I give my training content or even when we give our training content to the other trainers with which we work or the other facilitators with whom we work, uh, the voice of Hassan is so strong that it comes through in that content. And that voice can never be replicated. By the way, if you're looking for something that you cannot get off of Google, the word you're looking for is a forgotten one. It's called wisdom. And wisdom is something that is an incredibly short supply today. Now, I've used big words today. I've used two big words, actually, which I think you need to focus on when you're thinking about leadership development and when you're thinking about not only what I do, but also how that relates to how you live your life and how you work in your business and doing those other areas. I've used two big words today. I've used truth, capital T, truth, and I've used wisdom, capital W, wisdom, both of which, by the way, in our current era, people are incredibly shy about talking about. Because we live in a relativistic, deconstructed, French deconstructed, you'll appreciate that as someone from the UK, French deconstructed world. We live in the triumph of Nietzschean nihilism. You know, that wily old German that lives in the sub-basement of your assumptions? Because you're part of the West the same way that I am. He lives all the way down deep in there, unexamined and just curling and coiling around like a snake. And so one of the major problems that we we, we suffer from, um, particularly in the West, 
and now I'm going to use another big term there, the West. One of the big problems that we suffer from is no one fundamentally in a lot of different areas is really going down into the sub-basement and really battling nihilism, really saying that, no, there's actually something that's worth fighting for. There's actually something that's worth leading from. There's actually something that's worth preserving here. Um, when you've deconstructed the deconstructing and when the Ouroboros eats its own tail, what else are you left with? Mm. And so uh, I'm not going to say that I reject that. What I'm going to say is that uh, we still wrestle with those nihilistic existential constructs inside of our own work, and we seek to route them out and replace them with truth and wisdom, which is the most valuable thing that a leader, the most valuable gift that a leader has to get today. Okay. Whether they want the gift or not is a different thing altogether, <laughs> but it is the most valuable gift that a leader can have today. Well, that's a very interesting statement. And I'm going to ask another question. And I know that, you know, people who may listen to this episode, for example, may be religious, may not be religious. Um, but from what you, the, the way in which you're talking, and, you know, is there a religious angle to it? Are you non religious? Like, what is that something that you draw upon, like your religious tendency or your non religious tendency? Can we talk more about that? Sure. So I'm happy to say that I'm a follower of the Christian religion. Uh, I, uh, I uh, not only read my Bible and pray every day, but it also influences what I do and how I think. Um, yes, and I try to live to the standard that has been set, uh, the biblical standard that has been set. And we can argue about what that standard is and all of that. But fundamentally, the thing is, I actually believe that there's a standard to be lived to. Hmm. And so I try to hold myself to those rules and hold my leadership to those rules. Fundamentally, here's, here's an idea for you. As a person who operates in this space, I would never tell you to do something that I have not done myself. So I've led people that are atheistic. I've led people that are gay. I've led people that are straight. I've led people that are that identify as transgender. I've led people and trained people that identify as uh, black or white or Cuban or immigrants or whatever you want to call them, right? We live in a multicultural, multi-ethnic and increasingly for lack of a better term, paganistic society, which means that you're going to lead all of those types of people. I have led atheists and I've led believers. And quite frankly, fundamentally, whether they believe they have a soul or not, I believe that you have a soul. And so, because I believe that, I'm going to lead you from my standard and live up to the standards that uh, I am required to live up to and hold myself to that yeah. regardless of what standard you're holding me to, yeah. right? That's almost an irrelevancy. Now, because there's going to be nuance inside of this, let me address the religious question. When we talk about religion, religion is merely a structure built around a set of transcendental ideas. And when we deny those transcendental ideas or we deny the power of them, the transcendental impulse doesn't go away yeah. it goes and it migrates to someplace else so even your most atheistic or agnostic of listeners have a transcendental impulse somewhere yeah. it may be a transcendental impulse in biology 
It may be a transcendental impulse in sociology. It may be a transcendental impulse in nature. It may be a transcendental impulse in their own <laughs> existential nihilistic dread. <laughs> but everybody, as Bob Dylan said back in the day, everybody worships somebody. Everybody bends the knee to something. Because, again, to go back to Nietzsche, human beings cannot create their own value structure out of themselves. We tried for 120 years, and we're failing miserably at it. And we seem to, we seem to not really recognize that we can't do it. And so we are increasingly frustrated and in despair because it's not working. And we seek to replace those things. We seek to replace those transcendental structures with other structures, and they don't satisfy. Your phone will never be as satisfactory as a relationship with a higher power. And if your phone is your higher power, well, then you're constantly going to be frustrated by whatever's happening on Facebook right now or Twitter. Well, I have to say that's very interesting. And the reason why I, uh, I threw upon that is because even me, myself, I... I don't consider myself religious, but I definitely consider myself spiritual. So it's very, very interesting that we're having this conversation. But the reason, as I said, the reason why I took that angle is because I remember that in the Bible, leadership is a very important um, aspect. Um, and so I, for some reason, there was this, uh, there was this connotation about, um, about, about leadership in the Bible. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think the thing to, to conclude with is, what would you want people to know um, if, for example, you had the opportunity to speak to 15 people in a room? What <clears throat> and you want to encapsulate a nugget or something? What would you want them to know just to conclude this session? Sure. So first off, thank you, Laraba, for having me uh, on your show today. Thank you for talking with me. Thank you for asking me these challenging questions. This is great. Uh, normally, uh, I don't get asked questions like this, so this is good. I like going down these roads and exploring these ideas. Um, I would want everybody to go and check out, obviously, our Leadership Toolbox at uh, leadershiptoolbox.us and, of course, at leadingkeys.com. You can follow me everywhere. I have my own podcast, Leadership Lessons from the Great Books, where we read a great book. You just mentioned the Bible. Uh, our very first episode focused around the book of Nehemiah, where a gentleman uh, builds a wall <laughs> in the face of a toxic work environment. <laughs> and it makes some decisions about who's in and who's out. Yes. Yeah. A book of Nehemiah is a great book on leadership is a great main book um, to really look at in the, in the biblical literature um, around leadership roles and responsibilities. So you asked me to conclude, um, what would I say to a small group of people to wrap up? And here's what I would say. I'm going to repeat something that I said yesterday uh, at a conference. I'm going to repeat it here for you all today. We are in truly revolutionary times. And the revolution is not being led by the people from the top. The Wizards of Smart uh, at 10 Downing Street or in Brussels, uh, they don't actually know what's going on. They think they do, but they have no clue. Mm. They don't know. They have appointed themselves into positions and into titles, but that doesn't mean that they're leading. The last true statesman we probably had was probably about 30 years ago, right along with the fall of the Berlin Wall. 
And whether you agree with their politics or not, you knew that they were leaders, particularly in hindsight. We're in a different... Ronald Reagan? Reagan? I would say Ronald Reagan, I would say Margaret Thatcher, and I would say Pope John Paul II. Okay. I would say those three folks were statesmen. Now that's a very interesting statement you've made. As oh, a yeah. <laughs> as a Brit, as a Brit, I know exactly what I just said there. Yes, that's correct. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just loaded it up and threw it at you. <laughs> I will politely say I come from a little bit of a different perspective because. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, and I think um, because for, from, for somebody like myself, and this is, as I say, this is a great conversation. And even mm-hmm. if it's okay, um, I would try to do on like, figure, like, you know, something like Margaret Thatcher, from my perspective, there were a lot of things that she did that was not necessarily just controversial, but some would say um, were potentially divisive. I mean, there's a lot that she did, in, uh, for example, with the trade unions and in England that, that this is, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if it's a similar system where trade unions are represent um, are represented by the people. Um, so she did. She, she she did a lot of controversial things, and she's a very polarizing figure. So I know that we're supposed to conclude, but it will be interesting for you to like, like, tell me like what you know what is it that I'm missing? Because I'm not the biggest Margaret Thatcher fan in the world with what she did in South Africa and everything. But the floor is yours. You 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 tell your truth. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, you know, uh, and I I think that statesmen by their by their very nature are polarizing. But not all polarizing people are states people. So we have to kind of, we have to have some nuance in our thinking. Just because a person is polarizing doesn't mean that they are capable of leading. But just because a leader polarizes doesn't mean that they are not a leader. The lady is not just, I, I, the lady is not for turning. I'll leave, I'll leave, I'll leave that. I'll, I'll put that out there. The lady is not for turning. Uh, I'll, I'll put that out there <laughs> and kind of leave that there. We'll, we'll discuss that another time. You can have me on another time. We can talk about Margaret Thatcher. We can talk about political leadership um, and how that all plays out because of the dynamics there are different because the game is different. And that's why I mentioned Downing Street and Brussels. The game is different there. Yeah. And and the room of 15 people that I am talking to, none of those people know anybody at 10 Downing Street. None of those people know anybody in Brussels. None of those people um, got into that room with me because of who their daddy was or who their mommy was. Those people got there and they are the most, and this is actually their strength. They are the most innocuous people who were chosen to exist in a time like this to lead in the most innocuous ways possible and to do it in small ways consistently over the course of time. Because what is happening right now and what happens always in revolutionary and disruptive times is it is not the people with the title and the class and the position that are the most important people, that are the most important leaders. It's the guy down the street from you it's the guy in the trade union it's the guy in your community and in your neighborhood it's the woman who's your boss it's the woman who is at the school it's the woman who's in her family it's the man who's at the church 
whatever that may mean. It's the man who is on a podcast. It's the woman who writes the blog and puts the YouTube videos together. This is what our revolutionary times have brought us. It has brought us the ability of every single person on the long tail to be able to lead with courage and clarity and candor if you choose. Innocuous, small people made for revolutionary times like this. So every single one of the people who is in this room or within the sound of my voice right now needs to stand up, take on the mantle of leadership, and just lead. Start small, be intentional, and execute. Don't sit on your hands anymore. Because one day, your children are going to look at you, and they are going to say, what did you do in revolutionary times? How did you use your voice? Or did you just hang out and mow your lawn and maybe have a cuppa ever so often? Yeah, I like that, a cuppa. You, you, know, you know these British terms. Well, I have to say, even though I think it's been a very interesting conversation, which I've thoroughly enjoyed, so I'm very, very happy to have talked with you, Hazan. So thank you so much. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's definitely something to think about leadership, you know, and, and the role of leadership, not necessarily just in, you know, in the work environment, but outside. So it's very, very, very good conversation. So thank you so much. Uh, You're welcome, Larva. See you soon.